Thoughts by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. My name is Sonia Jimmy. In today's episode, we have PEI colleague Kushi Hung in conversation with Jessalina Rana on driving policy to the margins, advocating for dignified periods in Nepal. Jessalina Rana is a human rights lawyer, social entrepreneur and feminist activist. A Harvard Law School graduate, Jessalina co-founded pat to go a social enterprise focusing on menstrual health in Nepal, in 2018. Since its inception, pat to go has garnered national and international recognition for its impactful contributions to the menstrual health landscape in Nepal. Jessalina's passion for feminism, human rights and the law has driven her to contribute to both human rights and political legal discourse in Nepal and internationally. In this episode, Kushi and Jessalina discuss the challenges in pursuing policy solutions to issues of access to a dignified period, a topic shrouded in stigma and taboo. Jessalina shares the unexpected hurdles in seeking policy attention for the marginalized issue of menstruation and the importance of strategy, advocacy and sustainability in it. They explore barriers to accessing menstrual health and dignity, their deep impacts and recount national issues like the period tax and the state of periods in prison. They also discuss the evolution of a dignified period in the realm of human rights, the different ways it has expanded and how the conversation can be taken forward. Just a heads up, this episode is a remote recording, which is why the audio quality might not be what you're used to at parts. Regardless, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Namaste, my name is Kushihan. Namaste, my name is Jessalina Rana. Welcome to the show, Jessalina. How are you doing today? How's New York? Thank you so much for having me, Kushi. It's late, but I'm super excited to be here with you and just get the conversation rolling. Thank you so much once again. I know, right? Thank you so much for joining us all the way from the other side of the world, especially for agreeing to this remote recording, despite the jarring time difference. I know it's pretty late right now, but hopefully as our conversation builds in, we will reel you in. So today we're talking about how policy can be pursued for issues that are highly stigmatized and taboo. And particularly, we're looking at the case of women's right to a dignified period. Jessalina, you're an avid feminist and you have carried this ethos of feminism throughout your career as a human rights lawyer and as a social entrepreneur. Access to dignified menstruation was the main goal of your social enterprise, Patugo. And before we delve into the specifics of this project, let's start with rewinding a little and understanding the why behind your movement. For that, I think it would be a good place for us to start by sharing the landscape of reproductive rights. What was it like when you first started? And when I'm talking about the landscape, it's not just the conversations surrounding periods within the general public, but also in the arenas of um, civil society and rights-based circles. Thank you so much, Kushi. You're someone who's always been so supportive of pat to go and thank you so much. We see you on our social media all the time. So thank you firstly for that and secondly for having me. And you know, when I reflect back on pat to gos journey, it's so interesting because we started about five years ago. In fact, we celebrated our fifth year anniversary in 2023 and we're running into our sixth year now. And Shubhangin and I both are turning 28, 29 respectively this year. And, you know, we started, I was actually running into my 23rd birthday when we first got our vending machines and started to develop ideas around it. 
But when we started the conversation, reflecting back and looking back, I think there was so much going on within the country that it was a great time for innovative in- initiatives to come through. And I say that mostly because there have been so many other younger organizations that somehow started at the same time as us and are flourishing now as well. And so this was back in 2018, a year after the first federal level election. So I think that was a time where the government was still sort of trying to figure out what their priorities should be, what are some of the policies that they need to take forward. And obviously, civil society organizations have always been there. And I think that's one of the strengths of civil society organizations is that governments change, but the civil society organizations and civil society remain and are like an, an institution, if you would say. So I think we definitely had that leverage that we could take forward in terms of having civil society organizations do a lot of great work and have been doing a lot of great work even in 2018. Because when we started, when Shubhangi and I started Pad to Go, we were obviously a very small organization, still are a very small organization. But one of our key messages that we wanted to take forward was that collaboration is key. Because we started out without sort of access to you know, the, the the links that we perhaps have formed over these five years. And it was organizations who were already working in the sector that really helped us and took us forward and took our mission forward, not just the organization, but even the mission. So I think when we went to schools, especially in more remote parts of Nepal, we were able to witness some of the great work that they were already doing. And this, I think, has created a great base for government to take best practices from, learn from, and model policies. So I think when we started in 2018, even if the government was still you know, lagging behind, I think a lot of organizations had already taken that big leap of faith and started to, had been doing a lot of great work. And did any of these civil society works touch on menstruation during that time? Yes. So in fact, they looked at menstruation very holistically. But I think the way that a lot of organizations that we worked with was were looking at menstruation was from the WASH perspective, water, sanitation and health. So a lot of the projects that they were undertaking in schools, in college campuses was through WASH clubs that they would get students talking about and involving themselves in. So it was really interesting because they were able to look at it holistically, not just focus on menstruation, but also look at the water, sanitation and the health aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And uh, as you've answered this, can you explain how the idea or the topic of enabling a dignified period became a topic of focus in the discourse of human rights? How did it evolve, not just in Nepal, but even in the global landscape? I think that's such an interesting question because... When we go back and when we look at texts, especially at international legal texts, and I think as a lawyer, my perspective has always been to, you know, um, look into the documents, look at legal aspects of what formulates conversation, but what also codifies conversation. And I think that's how I approach law, especially international and human rights law, in that whatever is coming in the law are conversations that are already happening in the ground, but these are also conversations which need to be solidified through a text. And it's very interesting because if you look at the international sphere before coming to the domestic sphere, if you look at the international sphere in uh, just the human rights international legal context, we've had some pretty groundbreaking documents that have talked about gender rights, about women's rights, which span over 40 years ago. CEDAW, which is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, came about 40 years ago. The UDHR, which is the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, came about 70 years ago. 
But what's interesting is that none of them speak of menstruation explicitly. And in fact, it was only in 2022 that the Human Rights Council addressed menstruation and even said this is the first time we're addressing menstruation. So my thought when I started looking into this and researching into this and, uh, you know, WHO came out with a statement and that was very interesting to read right after or right before the Human Rights Council statement and in conjunction to the Human Rights Council statement, I would say that it was very interesting because in international law, the, the laws that get adopted are laws that states adopt. These are consensus documents between states. A lot of the times, the lobbying and the adoption takes place, unfortunately, or the drafting takes place, unfortunately, from a very Eurocentric lens. And something that we've noticed in the legal frame, in the international legal framework, is that there are provisions where you could read in menstruation into, like, gender rights, right to work, right to education, right to health. These are all things, all provisions in the text where you can read menstruation in. But the problem was that menstruation in the West or in the global North is very different from the experiences of menstruation in the global South. And it's interesting because conversations on menstruation and the challenges about menstruation in the global North stem from or are intrinsically related to concepts of period poverty, of not having access, of taxation, of all things which are perhaps more economic in nature. But conversations on menstruation in the global south may be related to access, may touch upon access, may start from access, but the challenges go beyond just access. And you know, so many people who hopefully will be listening to us can relate to this when I say that, you know, it's not just economic. Yes, it is economic, one of them, but it's also caste, it's class, it's gender, it's race, it's disability. It's so many things that are packed together and these intersectional identities form our experiences in addition to access to menstrual health. So when we look at the international legal framework, unfortunately, menstruation has never been addressed. And when WHO came out with their statement in 2022, as well as the Human Rights Council, something that they very particularly acknowledged and which I'm very grateful for is that a lot of these conversations have been pushed because of Global South activists and young activists who have been raising this topic on menstruation, grassroots activists, especially from the Global South, because it is a perspective that is missing in the Global North and needs to be taken forward in a very collective Global South solidarity. So I think that's very interesting that in the international legal framework, menstruation has been completely ignored or overlooked and you know we're forced to read it into uh, provisions through legal innovation rather than have the word there for us to implement. Mm. Those are some amazing insights. So Jessalina, having said all that, what does a dignified period mean to you as a researcher and an activist? A dignified period or dignity, you know, that's where I start the definition for Myself, and this is something that Patugo believes in as well, dignity is so subjective. What dignity means for me might not mean what dignity means for you. And that's something that Patugo realized when we were doing our research, when we were talking to people of different castes, class, creed, religion across the country in Nepal. We also did a conversation with all South Asian activists and eight South Asian countries and activists from all of these eight countries. And we realize that dignified period for us, for Pat to go, definitely focuses on access to menstrual products. 
equitable access to menstrual products. But like I said, it's so much more beyond that, right? It's having access to sanitation, having access to facilities, making sure that the government is able to bring down the barriers, not just, you know, and I, I look at it again from a very legal point of view, there are both positive rights and negative rights. It's for the government not to just not offend our rights, but it's also for the government to give certain rights. You know, and these are some things, for example, the tax on period products, which we have been lobbying to remove, the menstrual leave that is in conversation these days. These are things that we talk about. And I guess I would say dignified period is so subjective, but we definitely start from an access point of view, access to products, access to facilities, access to respect while you are on your period, access to all forms of respect for managing your menstrual health is what I would say starts the conversation on dignified period. Looking around, though, we have to say that the conversation around menstruation has really expanded, right? There are so many new nuances. Can you maybe list some of the ways in which you've seen uh, the conversation surrounding periods expand? So when we started Pad to Go, one of the things that we really wanted to focus on was innovation. Innovate the way in which we have conversations, but also innovate the way in which we drive change. And I, and that has been the building block of Pad to Go, and that's where we started um, uh, providing vending machines to schools. And I think one of the things that we've really seen in these past five years is one expansion of the modes of how you're having these conversations around menstruation. Social media has played such a great role in bringing these conversations into um, you know, the forefront and using different modes of social media, whether it's podcasts, whether it's um, you know going around asking people questions on the streets and having that on TikTok or Instagram. And these are all ways in which the conversation around menstruation is expanding in terms of the mode. But also the conversation itself is also expanding. We're talking about disability and menstruation. We're talking about trans men and menstruation. And very recently, um, about a, a few years ago, actually not recent, about a few years ago, Pat to Go, we did a month of inclusive menstruation and we had conversations with people with disabilities, both intellectual as well as physical disabilities and how that impacts your periods. We talked with women um, uh, from the Dalit community and what it means to be, one, treated unfortunately like an untouchable person, but also when you're on your periods, what the, what does that sort of double untouchability mean for you? We talked with transgender men who were so sympathetic to the cause because they, they have been left out of these conversations. And when we started these conversations with trans men, I think one of the things that really hit me was that the platform has not been there for trans men or non-binary people or queer people to talk about menstruation from their own personal experiences. For the longest time, we've used this term women and girls, women and girls, women and girls. But that's not the only aspect of what it means to advocate for gender rights, right? And sometimes in Nepal, even within the rights-based sector, we use gender as a synonym for women or girls. And I think we need to look beyond that. And I think in these ways, there has definitely been an expansion of the conversation, both in terms of its mode, but also in terms of its content. Yeah, and I think it's truly amazing to see how the conversation has grown to include more groups who have been facing the same um uh, difficulty surrounding this issue. Moving forward, uh, let's talk about the current status of periods, especially pertaining to Nepal. 
By now, I think most of us know the ex- exclusionary effects of period stigma. We have extensive coverage on Tsopori, uh, on the low attendance and high dropout rates of girls, or maybe I should say menstruating individuals. Um, your research, however, has discovered impacts that go deeper than what meets statistics and uh, that are more long term. Can you maybe share some of the uh, sh- some of the ways in which the taboo of period has detrimental effects to the lives of menstruators? Thank you, Kushi, for this question. And definitely, like you said, there has been extensive coverage of Tsaupadi Pratha, so much so that sometimes when you're talking about periods in Nepal and when you're having these conversations with people from the West, the only association they have is with menstrual huts. And, you know, I think that's a, another point of conversation that I've interestingly had with a lot of people, even with activists here to say that, you know, uh, that's a big challenge for women, especially in certain parts of the country. But that's not a challenge for all women or all menstruating people across the country. And you know, challenges differ. And, um, you know, Everyone has their own sort of challenges and we need to address all of them together because, and this is something um, someone said during one of our conversations, in fact, in Nepal, that, you know, there was a time where people were bringing down these menstrual huts, even government officials and organizations went around to certain um, communities and brought these huts down. But someone said, and, I, and I'd like to quote them and say that, you know, they said, which translates to, you know, we've brought down the huts, but when are we going to bring down the barriers within our own minds? And I think that that's something that really piqued my interest because what has been going on is generational, right? And the consequences are, at times, they are so subconscious that we overlook the impact. And something that I wanted to highlight was something that we've had to unlearn at homes, in, especially in a few homes, in, in certain homes in Kathmandu, period or mainawari is referred to as not suning or tsui honing, which translates to a state of being untouchable. For the longest time, I would use these words and not even think about the consequences of what it means to use these words because my mother used this word, my grandmothers used this word. So no one at home questioned this word. And I think The detrimental impact when we talk about menstruators, yes, there are extreme cases of death. There are also cases where we are forgetting to unlearn these generational biases, these generational unfortunate norms that we've established within the households that impact how we view ourselves, how we view dignity, and how we view our menstruation. And with Pat to go, when we did our research, we found out that especially when girls have higher dropout rates in in places where there's no access to uh, pads in school, where there's no access to sanitary facilities in school, they end up doing a lot of the household chores and the dropout rate is higher from school. They don't have the educational background to get a formal job in the formal market. At times, because they, their income is not as much as their partner's income, their decision-making levels at the household is also affected. And we're also leaving out boys from this conversation on menstruation when they're growing up to be men when they're growing up in households where they are they are taking decisions they are unaware of the implications of menstruation beyond just the physical implication um you know and at times even unaware of the physical implications so i think the detrimental effect that we have that the, the lack of conversation has on the lives of menstruators is is something that 
it still needs to be talked about more, still needs to be delved into more. And I definitely think that um, a lot of organizations are working on this and hopefully, you know, the next generation, um, you know, sees a better light. Previously, when we were talking about what a dignified period means to you, you suggested adopting an access-based approach. Um, let's talk about access briefly. Uh, you and your team ran a campaign highlighting the luxury tax on period products in Nepal, where you set up these pad dispensaries in various public places. Can you share the modality of this? How did this work for the listeners to know? And also in the years of observation, how did you see accessibility creating a change? The government came out with their policy on providing free pads to schools only in about 2019 or 2020. It was the budget between these two English years. And for us, it was very interesting because before that, we'd already started our work in 2018. So we'd done a year of our campaigning. We put up machines in different parts of schools across the country, most of which are outside of Kathmandu Valley. A very limited portion of our machines are inside the valley. We really appreciated the the positive response that we got, especially from schools and organizations who helped take these machines across the country. And one of the definite and and of course the pad the pad machine focuses on access. But one of the unintended benefits that we also saw was that after the government decided to provide free pads to schools, the machine then acted as yes an access point, but also a transparency point, because we did see certain schools where, you know, the, the distribution system hadn't been um, as clear as it should have been, but having these vending machines in there, in the in the bathrooms of these students, they had the knowledge to demand for pads when the pads would finish in the, in the pad-to-go vending machine. So that's one of the unintended positive benefits that we've seen, that transparency mechanism and model that comes out. But just, you know, going to the luxury tax aspect of it. I think this particularly we adopted in 2020 when during the lockdown, we were doing a lot of online campaigns and online conversations. And we had uh, the period talk with eight different activists from eight different South Asian countries. And, you know, we welcomed their perspectives and the challenges each of them were facing in their own countries with their work. And something that came about was that Maldives had taken out the tax on period products. India had taken out the tax on period products. And Bhutan was having these conversations in their parliament about the tax on period products. And we realized that, you know, we have a small legal team, which I lead. And we realized that, wait, we have a VAT Act. We have provisions in the VAT Act which say that essential goods should not be, uh, would not have the VAT. And there are things like art condoms, things like this, which don't have VAT on them. And we were so surprised. One, we were surprised that no one was talking about it. But second, we were surprised there's already a provision to remove it. We don't have to do the lobbying to create a law. There's already a law that would give us what we wanted. And we did calculation based on how much a menstruating individual is spending extra as a result of VAT, as a result of having to spend on period products. This, in fact, led a bunch of other research done by medical journals in Nepal, and our, our calculation acted as a base for them to explore this even more. And, you know, we started doing campaigns. We started, uh, you know, training young people. We started collaborating with young organizations. We started doing peaceful protests and demonstrations. It caught up across the country. 
we lobbied with the government, the government changed, we lobbied with the next government, they called us. So there was a lot of talk and they did, the government did actually address a small portion of what we wanted, but not everything what we wanted. So it wasn't complete win, but we're going to take the win as we get it and we're going to be lobbying more in the coming days and check if that there is implementation or not of the policy. Yeah, I think even uh, when I came across the uh, Ratokar Mafkar campaign, as you called it, uh, even I was shocked to know uh, about the fact that there's a luxury tax on period products and the fact that we didn't know about it. Um, and I think that is that again goes back to uh, the very first segment of this of this conversation where we talked about the beauty of CSOs and the necessity of active citizens. Um, adding to that, a very in- intriguing new venture for you has been advocating for period in prison. Uh, one would assume that an institution, uh, not to mention one that's run by the state, would have covered the basic needs of the individuals it houses. But according to your research, uh, we have found otherwise, especially when it comes to the reproductive rights of inmates. You've done a pilot research on the inmates and their surrounding their period needs and access to products. What were the different findings? This was such an interesting project for us and it's still an ongoing project and we're so happy to be taking it forward because like I said, dignified menstruation means very different for very different people and we want to be able to understand what the needs are of menstruating people in the current scenario, in the current political context and in the current legal context. So we wanted to first look at the legal aspects of what's going on in our country. What are the policies? Are there even policies surrounding this, right? And when we did our research, in 2023, we found out in that in late 2022, a law had been passed in Parliament, which on paper looks amazing. It, when you read it and when you um, you know put it across the, the international laws or the Bangkok rules, which are the sort of standard point of rules or laws for um, uh, women in prisons, you realize that it's not very different. It has the important aspects. The law adopted in Nepal is pretty progressive and it in fact states very clearly that um, the administrative staff in the prisons would provide free menstrual sanitary pads for women in prison. And we thought, wow, this is such a great point um, to start off from. But as you may know, the implementation in Nepal is not the best. So we did our small pilot research in Pokhra, in the jail of Pokhra, and we found many interesting results and many interesting findings. And one of the findings that we found out was that a lot of women are buying packets of pads from the commissary or from the, the, the commissary there, and they have to spend their own money, which is the state does give them a small amount to buy certain personal belongings, but when a packet of pad costs as much as it does with still the luxury tax or the VAT on it, and you have to buy an entire packet in a day, it could take away from a large budget of which you want to allocate for other things, for other personal necessities. So we thought it would be very interesting to put a vending machine, pad to go vending machine there in collaboration with an organization and look at the impact. We also worked very closely with the jail staff and who was able to raise funds for ongoing, who was able to raise funds to make sure that there are pads in the machine at all times. And 
the the impact or the response has been very positive because what women are able to do now is buy one pack one pad instead of one entire packet when they need it or two pads or three pads instead of an entire packet of seven or ten pads right um but it's interesting because that's one of the findings in our pokhra jail but in fact we went to the nua court jail very recently in fact a day ago and we wanted to assess the the implication of menstrual health in women's women's lives in the prison there and we realized that there women were getting access to pads they were getting a packet a month and they had this access to pads and it was interesting because that might be a that we still need to do more research but we want to see what the best practices are in certain jails which might not be in other jails and sort of try to standardize practice and make sure that the law that is there should be implemented but the interesting aspect was when we talked to the jail staff and we talked to uh, people in the prisons we were like you know there's a law that states that you should be getting free pads you shouldn't even be having to buy pads at all and they were like okay we did not we were not aware of this so i think for us the importance of making sure that people are also aware of the laws that directly impact them is also another stage of this conversation that we want to focus on and it's 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 a great project and we're very excited to make sure that prisons across the country have standardized approaches to making sure that the law that is there of free access to sanitary pads is implemented mm. and i think uh, it's really interesting that uh, through this project we're able to imagine human rights in prisons because prisons given our ideas of retributive justice we wish that people are in the least comfortable positions as possible but it's also about their basic human rights and i think this project really reemphasizes that and i love it um something that i wanted to focus on a very small tangent is the fact that the vending machines do not disperse each individual pads really um is this uh, just the mechanism of your business or d- uh, do you have like a different expectation out of it does it have something to do with sort of giving them that authority and agency as a consumer that's a very interesting question that i'm so glad to be able to clarify it so pad to go is a for profit business but we are a social enterprise we don't have equity stakes and we don't take profit everyone is paid like an employee um our 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 employees are paid like employees and uh, you know only the investment that was initially there that shubhangi and i made we took back but all the profit that comes into the company is reinvested into the company having said that we don't make profit from pads we don't sell pads we don't make profit from pads our main uh, product is the vending machine and we give this sort of decision to the institution buying the machine or the institution where the machine is placed to decide how they want to take forward um the 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 vending out of pads so in schools a lot of the times they have especially now that the government has given free pads you don't need to put money we use tokens so it's an informal way to receive the pads with tokens which act like money but you're not really paying money so like i mentioned it's it's a transparency model for pads that are already free in schools and the distribution mechanism becomes um the distribution mechanism becomes easier but there are places where for example hospitals and workplaces where workplaces are able to uh, put in a small amount or a small fee 
for the paths that they uh for paths that people are bending out and like you said it's also a way to make sure that there's ownership if there is a small um you know if if the machine requires some form of improvement you're able to use the money for that but having said that we really do emphasize especially with larger organizations who do have the funds to make sure that the paths are given free um so i think that way our machine really works well because we don't operate on monetary basis we operate on a machine coin basis so it's really up to the institution to decide whether they want to put in a small amount for the pad or they want to give it away for free and make sure that the vending machine only acts as a transparency mechanism having said that we also provide um lifelong collaboration with pad manufacturers both nepali and uh, imported pads and that's as per the consumer's choice once again to decide if they want pads at a less than market rate so we want to provide them pads at a much less market rate uh, so that even if they are using patugo machines and they want to use pads but they want to make it you know um, a small monetary amount they want to impose on it it's still much less than what they would have to buy it from the market so we are trying to make it as flexible as possible for them and you know hopefully one day it's it's accessible for everyone I think there's a really interesting uh, aspect of innovation to whatever you do and you've said this before uh, that you are eager to invite innovation in this pursuit. So moving forward with the conversation, I want to particularly talk about this because introducing and directing agendas in the policy sphere is already a challenging task. On top of that, the agenda that you sought to set was one drenched in stigma. So what was this process like? How accessible is the policy sphere or the decision-making spaces for mobilizations like yours? And what were some of the unexpected hindrances in the beginning and perhaps even now as you push your agenda forward? So the policy space is always daunting and I say this as someone who's been in the space who you know, I I focused my education on law on policy on politics and the conversations around it and it's always daunting um it's daunting for me and and you know it's always uh, an uphill challenge but i think with especially younger uh policymakers and politicians coming into the space who are more accessible through social media who are more accessible to younger people and the younger generation i think that that gap is being bridged but just looking at it in terms of pat to go's journey i think what was really encouraging was to see certain organizations and certain um like even un agencies really push for younger people to be at the conversation and make sure that young people have that platform or have that chair at the table and not you know wait to comment on the conversations that are already happening So when we started the Ratu Karmafkar I think it's it, it it really started out as a collaborative project like I mentioned before Patugo is a very small organization and we wanted to acknowledge our limited capacity having said that you know we trained young ambassadors uh, college ambassadors on how to do advocacy uh, on on ways to spread the information we collaborated and made loose networks to mobilize other organizations we talked with different organizations who were grassroots and could you know conduct peaceful protests and rallies and all of this all of this together caught the government's eye and all of this together 
push the government for to call us and have a conversation with us but before that it was interesting because another unprecedented challenge that we had to go through was the, that there was a change in the government we were lobbying with one government overnight the government changed so all that we were doing in the past we had to start from ground up so it really helped in that sense that we had uh, media coverage we had people who were archiving this who were photo- photographing this who were making videos out of it social media content out of it that really helped to re-push the entire agenda to the new government so i think that was an unprecedented challenge that we didn't even imagine would happen right uh, but having said that i think it really helped that we one get the conversation started but also be strategic in how we want to take the conversation forward be strategic in the types of organizations we partner up with use our use our points of advantage which is social media which is having conversations with young people and really rising up to the challenge so i think a lot of it was a collaborative effort and we really believe in the value of that and even with our coming projects we hope to be more collaborative every time we're trying to do something new and it really really put the the agenda on the map because we wanted to make sure it was the agenda that we were focused on patugo was not there to claim limelight we were not there to make a name and you know garner press we were there for the cause and we are here even now for the cause um, you know we got a small uh, government acknowledgement in the national budget but we're not we're not there where we want to be and even as we move forward with more policy changes we want to be able to make sure that this is really a collaborative effort because if i remember the saying that you know if you want to go fast go alone but if you want to go far go together so we really want to go far and we want to go together and and i usually hope we're able to get the results we want as we're talking about this something that comes to my mind is Okay, policy making is one thing, but actual implementation and bringing about social change also has a very tangible side to it. Um you've mentioned earlier that the conversation surrounding menstruation has always intersected with wash or water sanitation and hygiene and simply put creating conditions for a dignified menstruation requires infrastructures like clean water or transportation links. but waiting for them might delay the delivery of women's rights and urgent needs right so how have you been able to bridge this gap between the lack of infrastructure and the need to deliver to women definitely i think what you're seeing you know it's it's a looming thought over our heads every day you know because one of the conversations and and i want to acknowledge this because this is an issue we're constantly grappling with is what of pad disposal right what about facilities that require what about access to these facilities that require are required by menstruating individuals to make individuals to make sure that our experience is dignified is holistic and that all needs are looked into that is definitely a looming thought over over pad to go over you know all other activists who are in the field in our in our minds and, and again i would like to acknowledge in this we've really benefited from a collaborative work process when we go to schools in remote nepal or even in kathmandu uh, you know even in schools in kathmandu when we've placed these vending machines one of the concerns i remember one time 
a school in Kathmandu raised was, well, we don't have dustbins inside the bathroom. What's the point of putting these vending machines and ensuring access to pads because it's going to dirty the bathroom? And I said, well, why don't we put a dustbin in the bathroom then? That would solve the issue, right? But it's, I mean, every time it's not as black and white. It's not easy as that. There's so much bureaucracy. There's so many other conversations to have around disposal of pads, around access to pads. And like you said, the conversation needs to go hand in hand. Sometimes it doesn't, but we want to push that conversation hand in hand. So even though, even when we go to schools and we place the vending machines, we talk about taboos because it's not just about making sure that you have access to pads. It's also making sure that one, you know how to wear pads. And that's something that we realized had not happened. Like there were distribution of pads in a certain school and we were going placing the vending machine to increase transparency and access of these pads that the government had given. But there's lack of formal education and at-home education on menstruation. Students do not know how to put on pads and we had completely overlooked that. We just took it for granted that people do know how to do this. So every time now that we do trainings, we also teach students, both boys and girls, how to wear a pad. How are pads worn? How are they supposed to supposed to be disposed of? And this is some of the conversations we want to push even when we're putting up the machines. We want to talk about facilities. We want to talk about water access. We want to make sure that it's benefiting the students and not just the teachers. In one of the schools in in Dhating, they wanted to put it inside the teachers' lounge. And I said, "Well, that's not that's not going to support access in any way. Students are going to have big problem coming to the teachers' lounge, and sometimes they're not even allowed inside the teachers' lounge, right?" So, like you said, there are so many factors that go in to making your water, sanitation, health experience the perfect experience but we need to start somewhere and we need to have the other conversations as we go as well definitely definitely jessalina and as we move forward with a conversation i want to recall that last year the theme of the menstrual hygiene day was making menstruation a normal fact of life by 2030 it's it's an it's a known fact that despite being a natural and necessary phenomenon our periods are often only voiced in hushes and whispers and although the mission looks simple it is truly hard to overcome the internalized stigma and the structural norms that have existed for so long so how do you think can we imagine ways to enable open conversations surrounding periods in both the public and private spheres of society I always go back to the basics when we're having conversations about normalizing something so taboo. And my instant understanding is that family is the smallest unit of society. And conversations that we have at the family level have such a deep impact at the at the public level. And what is personal is political, and what is personal will eventually become public. And Within the family structure, I believe there is an innate need for Nepali people to stop being ashamed of periods, to stop imposing restrictions on menstruating people as if it's a norm. Even within households in Kathmandu, I've noticed in so many educated households, we imagine that, you know, oh, this you know restriction is, is a limiting concept in the minds of certain people who may not have had education, who may not have had the opportunity to live in urban spaces. But the unfortunate reality is even in the most educated and urban households of Kathmandu, there are women and menstruating people who are eating differently on their periods, who are eating on different plates, 
who are sleeping in different rooms, who are not sharing beds with their husbands during their menstruation. And it has gone to the extent of normalization where we don't even question it within the household. And I think that's where we need to start. We need to start at the household level, but our conversations need to be structurally supported at the public level. By this, I mean that the education system needs to do better. Teachers need to do better. Policymakers need to do better. We should shy away from having these conversations. And these conversations need not be limited to only women and girls. One, as we call it, we put the men in menstruation. Let's have conversations with young boys from a young age. Let's not segregate young boys and girls right talking about this concept for the first time. Let's bring fathers into the picture. Let's bring brothers into the picture. Let's teach people what it means to actually be open about it and stop being ashamed about it. And I think that's where we need to start to normalize it at the family level. But like I said, it needs to be supported structurally at the at the public level through education, through the education system, by policymakers, by the government programs and policies. And I think with that and now with the advance of technology, we have an actual way to make this as normal as possible. This is something many of my male co-workers and friends wanted to know. And I know we talk about boys and educated them, but what about um, men who've already crossed that phase of learning and are now here to support their menstruating counterparts? How do you suggest they can be uh, proactive allies in this? That's such a great question. And, and I really hope um, I'm able to answer it and do justice to it. And I can only speak for myself, but I think what I would appreciate from my male friends, my colleagues, my partner, my uh, counterparts is one to ask what a menstruating individual, a woman might need, right? Is it another conversation on menstruation or is it, you know, just some time off? Uh, but no, having said that, I think that's a, that's a very nice way to sort of look at it. How do men or how do non-menstruating individuals be allies? And I think I read a quote very recently, and it was definitely not concerning allyship for menstruation, but it was allyship in general for social justice causes. And, and it really resonated with me, and I'd want to highlight that and also uh, acknowledge that this is not my quote, and I read it, and it just really resonated with me, is that allyship should always be louder than the oppressor, but quieter than the oppressed. And I think that's what true allyship means, that when you're advocating for something, you're louder than the oppressor, but you make sure to understand the lived experiences and voices and not to take up space in these conversations, but to support the conversation in these spaces. And I really think it also starts from doing away with normalized concepts like, you know, when seeing things like, oh, she's moody today, maybe she's on her period, you know. Emotion, human emotion is a natural expression. PMS is real, but that does not impact a woman or a menstruating individual's ability to lead, ability to function. Different people have different needs. And I think that's one of the things that we want to highlight with the menstrual leave policy that we want to advocate for is that some people have very difficult periods and they might need time off, but some people don't have difficult periods and that's great. They don't need time off. Some people's PMS ranges from just craving chocolates to some people's PMS, you know, causing them a lot of anxiety. So I think it's so individual specific and being a true ally means just having this conversation very normally and 
just asking the person what they need during that time if they need something. Uh, but other than that, I think it's also to be well educated and up to date with education. You know, something like you said, there are older men who want to be allies, but we also need to realize that some of the education that we've been given about menstruation hasn't been accurate. Especially if you look at the the course books in Nepal, they provide very inaccurate and sometimes dangerous information on how to deal with menstruation. Right. So I think it's constantly being open to learning, but also unlearning. I think would be a great way to show allyship. Mm. Wow, I agree to every every part of that answer, and that's something that I would want to put out in the world as well. Uh, as we're coming to the end of this conversation, something that I really wanted to ask from my own personal place is: what, who are some of your favorite creators and educators who are working on the awareness building side of menstruation? Maybe you can recommend it to our listeners who want to learn more about the social and even the biological aspects. Sure, of I love that. I love following menstrual educators and also looking at the different ways they're trying to express and bringing these conversations and I absolutely love it so um, within the Nepali space I think period Kakura I think they're doing a great job in bringing these conversations into a podcast format untold period stories highlights a lot of stories that um, go untold or unnoticed as you can understand from their name um, so these two are particularly um, within the Nepali context. Within the South Asian context, um, there's this person named Dr. Cuteris on Instagram, and she brings a lot of informative um, um, content on menstruation, on reproduction, health, um, and it's really great to constantly like watch her videos and learn more. And I think globally or more US-centered, I want to say globally, more US-centered is this new page called Roe v. Bro. And this is this uh, is this uh, page that has come after Roe v. Wade was, or the abortion, access to abortion rights was taken down in the US. So they go around asking young men about their perspectives and knowledge, more than perspective, their knowledge on menstruation, on abortion, and and sort of educating them about what, they're saying wrong a lot of the times so i think these are some great starts to um, just um, you know enable your journey on learning more about menstruation and reproductive health of menstruating people yeah i think i'll definitely be listening to uh the two podcasts uh before we bid goodbye uh jessalina i wanted to ask what can we look forward to in the coming days for pat to go and how can the listeners get involved if they're enthusiastic we're very excited. Shubhangi and I both are very excited, especially because over the past five years, Pad2Go has had its own development and its own sort of identity growing. But at the same time, both Shubhangi and I have also tried to strengthen our own information, knowledge, capacity. We want to go far and we want to go together. And we want to really make sure that this is not a startup that comes and goes. It's a startup that is here to stay. And we're constantly innovating, whether conversation or products around menstruation. And we really hope that in the coming years, we're able to follow through some of the campaigns we're bringing forward. We're also able to innovate the conversation and, you know, document some of the progress that we've been doing and really build it into a bigger organization i think one of the limitations we've had is that because it's been a smaller organization even some of the bigger works that we want to do hasn't come through yet um, it's been slow 
but I think we want to increase size, we want to increase capacity, and we really, Shubhanki and I individually, really want to bring our strengthened capacities that we've sort of built over these five years into the organization. We're going to be announcing a summer fellowship program, so we did it in 2023, and it's going to be an annual process. It's going to be a two-month-long fellowship for college-level students to travel across Nepal, to learn about menstrual advocacy and to just work with us and experience what it means to be an advocate of menstrual health in Nepal. Thank you so much, Jesselina. It was so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us at Pods. Thank you, Kushi, and thank you not just on my behalf, but on behalf of the entire Bad to Go team for having us and for always being supportive. And um, I really hope we have more chances to collaborate with BEI as we move forward and all the best for you as you go forward as well. Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Kush's conversation with Jessalina Rana on driving policy to the margins, advocating for dignified periods in Nepal. Today's episode was produced by Kushi Hung with support from Nirjan Rai, Sonia Jimmy and Videsh Sapkota. The episode was recorded at PEI Studio and was edited by Ridesh Sapkota and Nirjan Rai. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Jindabad. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at Tweet2PEI. That's Tweet, followed by the number 2, and PEI, and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Sonia Jimmy. We'll see you soon in our next episode.